Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, La Nina Dodgers. I hope you've successfully navigated the raging floodwaters of the modern day and continue to do so for the next six months or so. Congratulations, though, on landing upon another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. By merely selecting this episode, things are well and truly looking up for you, at least for the next 40 minutes or so. And welcome back to Australia, all the way from the sandy dunes and the ancient ruins of Giza, smelling like the back end of a camel, and with a weather-beaten fedora covered in sand, not sure how that got through customs, it's our very own technological Indiana Jones. Welcome home, Matthew Dickerson. Thank you very much. I don't think there's too many components that get carried in sand, so they let me get through with the sand. Yeah, sand right, was okay. okay. So. Is that organic material sand? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, no, no. It doesn't class as uh, organic. There you go. Phew, I didn't do the wrong thing then. <laughs> <laughs> so it has been interesting travelling around some various sections, as you say, Egypt, Jordan, some various places around there. But one thing that we have talked before about on this podcast has been air tags and using yeah. air tags to make sure that you've got an idea of where your luggage is. When it turns up, now I'm proud to announce that my luggage didn't go missing anywhere on any of the travels, but air tags... Well, that's boring, isn't it? Well, that is boring, but (laughs) air tags were still quite useful because what you do is you'd land somewhere in some other airport and you'd pull out your phone and you'd check, and the first thing you'd see is that your luggage was in fact in the same airport that you were in. So you thought, well, that's a good start. That's a good start, yeah, at least. (laughs) So at least we're there. It's not on the carousel yet, but at least I know it's in the right airport. And then you'd... Tick about to be loaded on another plane while you're waiting in the airport. Well, you're hoping not, and that's <laughs> okay. where you wanted to keep an eye on things. And then you'd tick the button that says notify me when I'm within range. And what I found, every airport, every carousel that we're at, once I tick that button and you'd stand beside the carousel and watch for bags to come out and pop out and mm. get beaten up as they went around on the carousel, what you'd find is that when they got in range of your phone was about when it was being loaded downstairs in the belly of the airport somewhere onto the carousel, so you could predict with pretty good accuracy when that bit of luggage was about to pop out on the carousel. And where I found particularly interesting was one particular airport we're at, there were bags coming out on one carousel, and the flight that we're on, the flight code was on that carousel, but unbeknownst to us, they were using two carousels. The carousel beside ours didn't actually have any illustration to show that there were bags coming out on that same flight on that carousel. So that's where your bag popped out. Our bag, we got a notification to say, your air tag, your bag's in, within range now. And we looked at this carousel and went, that can't be right. It's not there. And we glanced across and there are bags on the carousel next to ours. We went, oh, look at that. And that carousel, no one gathered around it because <laughs> no one was waiting around that carousel. So it was quite And when you went and grabbed your bags, everyone took a second, like uh, did the whole double take. We saw What's those, he doing? That's right. We saw those people on the plane. <laughs> Why are they going to that carousel? So it was actually quite interesting. The other thing I found interesting was in Amman, in Jordan, I actually noticed from all the places we travelled, there were probably more EVs in Amman, and maybe it's an occupational hazard I have, James. Mm. Maybe it sounds very boring when <laughs> I said to my wife, oh, look, there's another EV there. I haven't seen that model before. But we did actually notice that there were more EVs in Amman. So I thought, of course, couldn't help myself, did a bit of research on that. And there were a few things that stuck out to me. The first thing was I saw some models that we haven't seen in Australia. So the ID4, we've talked about the Volkswagen ID4, the platform they use. Yeah. So saw a few of those models, saw some various models that I haven't seen in Australia. So there were some Ford hybrids, for example, and I know we don't count hybrids as proper EVs, but there was still another model that's going down that path. But when I did a bit of research, what was fascinating was there were a few things that had actually added to the sales of EVs in Jordan. The first thing is petrol prices are going very high, much higher than in Australia. Sorry, I hope um, we've got some pollies listening in here, right? Hopefully, hopefully. Okay, all right. So the petrol prices, which the polys can't necessarily control. No, no, that's right. But it's interesting that you are sitting there with a lot of oil-producing nations around you when you're in Jordan. Yeah. But of course, they don't produce any oil themselves. There are rumours that there is oil below the ground somewhere in Jordan. And you'd almost say it would have to be because you're so close to places like Saudi, but there's no oil that they produce themselves. So petrol prices are quite expensive in Jordan. So mm. that started to make people think about EVs a little bit. And then... The government, get ready for this, James, the government made some decisions that might be quite progressive. (laughs) Hang on. Here's the sound of me falling over. (laughs) There's an excise duty on all cars. What the government has done is they've said, we're going to leave that excise duty on all 
ICE vehicles, on all petrol burning, fossil fuel burning vehicles, we're going to reduce that excise to a certain amount on hybrid vehicles and reduce that excise to almost zero on electric vehicles. What, and encourage purchases of EVs? And guess what Are it they did? crazy? Guess what it did? <laughs> <laughs> it increased the sales of EVs. So last year, the full sales of EVs last year compared to the first six months of sales this year, they have already doubled the EV sales in the first six months of this year compared to the full 12 months of last year. So that continues on. Logically, you probably quadruple the sales. So a 400% increase of sales over last year based on, again, petrol prices from the reports I read certainly had a bit of an influence there, but changing that government subsidy certainly made a big difference. And um, you could see the country falling apart at the seams. <laughs> That's right. It was collapsing everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually quite impressed. A few places we went, lots of wind turbines around, so that's good. They've got a reliance on other countries to get their gas, to get their oil. So they're making some decisions about trying to be unlinked from some of those other countries. Mm. There's one particular gas pipeline that feeds a range of countries through there. And the guy that we had giving some information said, and this data might be out of date by now, but at the time he told us that pipeline had been attacked, as in terrorist attacks, 26 times so far wow. in the lifeline of that pipe, in the lifetime of that pipeline. So it's probably something they can't rely on always for their yeah. gas coming in. Yeah, yeah. Countries are saying we've got other opportunities and guess what? They've got some sun over in these countries. So solar and then wind as well are big parts of their future. So it's interesting to see what other countries are doing. It's all well and good to read about it, but to see the results on the ground, to be out on the streets and seeing EVs, more EVs on the road, that's always very encouraging. Mm. And who would have thought that a government would encourage people to buy EVs? Anyway, (laughs) maybe one day. And the good times continue with our first story of the week, folks. Matthew, I'm feeling like everything old is new again with this first story. It also feels like this story is aimed squarely at the 55 and overs. Folks, what wouldn't you have given to have been able to record and cut your own vinyl records back in the day? Now, it may be 50 years late, but there is now the tech available to do just that, that recording on vinyl, I mean, from the comfort of your own living room couch. Yes, we can finally cut our own vinyl records. Hallelujah. It's about time, Matt. We can do it for an incredibly cheap price as well. You can actually buy, there's a company called Teenage Engineering, and they do things that seem like good fun for teenagers, Those I assume. teenagers who just can't get enough vinyl. <laughs> That's right. So we've had the discussion before about vinyl. I'm not the greatest fan of vinyl, but I understand that some people are. Oh, I love it. <laughs> but what a great concept. Actually taking some vinyl or taking your favourite song, music, whatever. It might be your own recording. Who knows? It might be your favourite music. And you can actually go and cut your own vinyl record. Now, the definition, they actually call it lo-fi rather than hi-fi. Because the the definition, the sound quality may not be absolutely perfect. And because it's actually just done by a very small, fairly cheap device itself, you're not actually getting a lot of music on one vinyl record. Obviously, you're trying to cut grooves in there at a fairly low accuracy, Mm. so the grooves are further apart, obviously. And so you can do, for example, four minutes if you're happy to have it spin at 33 revs per minute or three minutes at 45 revs per minute, so obviously slightly higher quality there, but three or four minutes on a vinyl record. Obviously, It's a single. It's a single, that's right, (laughs) absolutely. And be careful because there were some singles that came out on vinyl in the days when that happened that were longer than three or four minutes. So it's a short (laughs) single in in terms of the music that you might put on there. But the concept is fantastic. You'll pay about $2 for each of the records, the the blanks, if you like, that you put in there to actually cut it. The little cutting heads that go in there. They recommend doing some simulations on your computer first. You can actually do some simulations of how it all works and how long it is and how it all goes together because you don't want to put your blank in and then... Do it. Yeah, once you've cut it, if it's <laughs> if it's no good, that's right. You just got this bit of plastic. End of story. There. But you can take it then from that from that record player and take it to any other record player, and it will play because it's using the same concept. It's just not great in terms of that fidelity, in terms of how good that sound is. And again, that groove, as you would understand, you're just relying on a needle being vibrated back and forth as mm. it goes along those grooves. It's doing exactly that, but. Because it's fairly low-tech, if you like, for a fairly cheap machine, those grooves aren't that tight together and obviously the fidelity of that sound isn't great. But just as a great concept to cut your own record. (laughs) I think of all the other ways of of recording music and voice right now, (laughs) and we're doing it ourselves, um, (laughs) to choose to go back to this one, 
Um, there's got a bit of novelty value about that, but uh, I, I wonder how, how it'll take off. 55 and overs, are you listening? Go and get yourself a, a vinyl record cutter. We have talked before about the nostalgia value, the yeah. novelty value of some yeah, tech. Yeah, yeah. And there are some people out there who are dreaming up wonderful ways to make the world better with tech. And there are other people who are saying, what nostalgia things can we flog off to people? And I think this is one of those. But yeah, look, I just precisely. for someone that's got everything, for, if you've got a friend in your life that loves tech, and this isn't a call out to my kids, but if you've got a friend <laughs> in your life who loves their tech and has... And loves vinyl. So and loves vinyl. have both of those. And loves everything. And Sorry, has, <laughs> has got everything they could possibly have in terms of tech. So we're narrowing the field down ever so slightly here. This is the sort of present that you could see them getting on Christmas Day and using all Christmas morning and then putting away never using again. <laughs> but I do like the concept. I think it's a really cool concept of just showing how we can do things today with the technology we have compared to going back decades ago when vinyl was a thing, having to press out vinyl records in the quantities they did, but also the technology that was used for that. Can you imagine, like, that would be the ultimate pickup thing. Like, you could say to that girl that you've been chasing in high school, um, you know, do you want to come back to my place and we'll cut a record together? <laughs> and she would have gone, yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> that's Let's right. do that. <laughs> so giving dating advice here on Tech Talk. <laughs> Uh, look, but it's no longer like 85, 1985 or earlier, so um, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure that it'd work. Anymore. I thought you were going a different path. I thought you were saying that you could go out and say to a young lady that you might meet that you've got your own record, and then people would go, oh, wow, yeah, oh, yeah you you're a rock star. Yep. Yeah. Well, how many have you sold? Well, so far, I've cut so, one. No, I've cut exactly one record. <laughs> now, in my teenage years, my mother tended to look after me more than I looked after myself, I've got to confess. I don't think um, I was the only adolescent guilty of that, though. As I speak now, I can hear Mum's voice saying, I think you need a bit of a drink of water, son, after any exercise more rigorous than perhaps a walk to the back shed. Folks, sometimes we just need to be told when we're dehydrated, and that's where Gatorade has come to the rescue with a new water bottle that can detect when you need to hydrate. Matt. This is clearly not simply a marketing ploy where apparently I'll need to rehydrate whenever I approach this bottle. <laughs> I could have invented that. It's just a recorded message saying, hey, get some of this water in here. <laughs> and there are other <laughs> devices that I'm aware of that might do something like every 30 minutes of exercise, for example, you need to rehydrate. Yes, or yeah, every it's so many, just on a timer. That's right. Or so many calories you might have burned. So this one's a little bit cleverer than all of that. To make it work properly, you've got your... Water bottle. You, you don't have to pee into anything on the side. <laughs> no, no, okay, not right. at this stage. Maybe that's coming. That's a new feature. You've got a water bottle. You've got a sweat patch. And, of course, you've got an app on your phone. You then, at some stage through this process, need to calibrate your sweat profile. So how sweaty you are as an individual, <laughs> you create your sweat profile. Then by wearing the patch, going out, doing So if the exercise, patch doesn't stick to you, you're obviously way <laughs> too sweaty. That's right. Okay. Maybe you stick the patch on before you start sweating <laughs> so that it sticks on the dry skin and keeps that part dry there. And then what it does is with the sweat profile, with the exercise you're recorded and the information that comes through to that patch, it feeds that information back to your phone, your phone communicates with the water bottle, lights up some lights around the water bottle. Bells and whistles. Exactly right. Hurry up. Tells you you should be rehydrating because you've sweated out a certain amount. And that's a fairly scientific way to do it. I do like that part of it, that obviously we lose some water when we breathe. So there's some water in a water vapor or some, in a, every time we breathe, there's a bit of water in our water, sorry, a bit of water, water in our yeah. breath. And then obviously we're sweating. So we're losing most of our water, most of our liquid through sweat. So if we're tracking that part, tracking the sweat part and tracking the exercise, I'm sure they've spent a lot of time doing lots of testing with lots of athletes to get to the point where they can actually fairly accurately say, you need to be rehydrated. And I remember reading some information a long time ago when I was doing some crazy push bike rides across the desert and it talked about rehydrating and how much performance you would lose for a very small amount of dehydration. So for example, it gave right. dehydration in the one or two percent levels and the performance would be impacted your performance in terms of exercising would be impacted severely from very small dehydration levels so keeping the rehydration up keeping the sweat levels checked on 
doing all that, if it's done in terms of the calibration scientifically enough, I think this is absolutely fantastic. Now, I necessarily wouldn't recommend this just because you're going out for a walk on a Sunday morning and having a chat to a few neighbours. It'd probably be for someone that's a bit more serious about it, out running, push bike riding, whatever you might be doing at a fairly high level. But sure, if you want to do it on a Sunday morning, just out for a casual stroll, go for it. I just don't see you sweat that much during those sort of exercises. I wonder if it also picks up whether or not there's Gatorade in the bottle or not, <laughs> and whether or not it goes being more um, if there's Gatorade in the bottle. Well, I was trying to keep the brand name out of it, but now you've mentioned the brand name. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> well, I mentioned Gatorade in the, in the intro. So yeah, that's anyway, right. So we've become what, walking advertorial. Exactly right. What Gatorade does do is they actually sell pods that you can mix in. So they do have a mm. known amount of electrolytes and carbohydrates in the water. So by putting those pods in there, the app knows about those. So when you're drinking again, it's making sure that the electrolytes you're losing in your sweat are being replenished to the right level in the water and the pods that you're drinking in there. Well, I actually wonder if it's not actually, the patch isn't actually measuring um, the conductivity or, or concentration of salts in your sweat too because as you decrease your water, your concentration of your sweat would also pick up too, surely, wouldn't it? Yeah, you're right, absolutely right. So I'm not sure if it goes to that level. At this stage is what I can understand the sweat patches measuring moisture levels okay. and then probably making some estimations, some well-researched estimations on the electrolytes you might be losing in that process when you sweat a certain amount. But yeah, you're right, those salinity levels would change, mm. those electrolyte levels would change when you're sweating, but I think at this age it's just measuring the water content, the moisture content of that sweat, and then making some estimations around that. It's only a matter of time before they start telling us how many electrolytes we've missed, so you would have to have the brand name. <laughs> of drink in the bottle and not just water. You're probably right. You're probably yeah. spot on there. <laughs> okay. All right, now, this one's for the gym junkies. Are you getting enough from your gym workout? Well, you may think that you are, but let's face it, you can always go a little bit harder. So why not hook up yourself to a bunch of electrodes in a full-body electrical suit and get those muscles twitching in between your power lifts? Matt, I can imagine that wearing this uh, electrical suit for a workout would be pretty weird. I remember seeing late night shows. You'd come home from the pub sometimes, turn on the TV, and there'd be some advertising there for some device that you would stand on and it would jiggle things around. And it'd have some Kiwi as the voiceover for it. Too. Always, always, always Kiwi, <laughs> that's right. And after jiggling for a certain amount of time, you just did a full marathon or the equivalent of, and of course everyone would go, wow, that sounds fantastic, and order in the middle of the night, as you do. And I'm not sure there was any scientific proof that any of those worked. We've progressed a little bit from there. I'm not saying we've progressed all the way, but there are various devices you can put on different parts of your body that give electrical stimulation. Mm. Now, that's exactly what our muscles are doing. When we're working, we're, we're lifting that weight up. Obviously, we've got our brain saying send some electrical signals to that particular muscle and have them contract and lift that weight up and keep doing that to obviously increase the amount of muscle there. So if we could have a way of sending those electrical signals without having to think about it, in other words, just stand there and let it do it all for us, that sounds absolutely fantastic. It sounds like you're cheating, mm. and I get that, but this is advanced to the level now where you can get a full EMS bodysuit. So you basically put on this entire electrical muscle stimulation suit. So it can <laughs> no, stimulate... Just, this would be just weird, wouldn't it? it just feel weird as you're working out. You, just muscles are like spasming. And well, I don't want to work out. I just want to put it on and go oh, yeah, to bed, sorry. and the next day I get up and I look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Isn't that how it works? <laughs> so they do talk about the fact, and they gave some examples. There was a long-distance row, for example, that tried exercising with this suit on. So I think the idea is to enhance the exercise rather than just lay there like a blob and let it do all the work for you because that's the ultimate isn't it that's what we really want when all said and done we want to sit around and do nothing watch our favorite movie and go Phew, look at that i look so tone and buff after watching that movie i might watch one more the problem ripped. with the whole electrical muscle stimulation sector is that studies into whether it works are mixed and when you read some of the reports and again some of these reports are paid for by the EMS industry, so maybe just sprinkle a grain of salt on top of these, but they use words like they might help or they could help or they may help. And one report even said that it's... Non-committal words. Non-committal yeah, words. Right. And, and one report said that it's been acknowledged that it can help significant improvements in strength, but then it said that the results are poorly understood and may require more study. 
when you go to the US Food and Drug Administration, which actually regulates these, so you think, well, there's a positive sign. There is some regulation. It's not just some yahoos out there going, hold on, we'll just try a different voltage. I wonder what that would do. What could go wrong? <laughs> so they said that EMS machines may be able to temporarily strengthen tone or firm a muscle, but only if accompanied by exercise and dieting. Now, it sounds like something that you would see. Come and use our weight loss program, and if you use this particular additive or whatever it might be they're trying to sell and combine it with exercise and dieting, <laughs> you're going to be fitter and healthier or lose weight. And you think, well, what if I just didn't take that particular product and did the exercise and, and just, dieting anyway? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would that help me? <laughs> so I can't say that this is definitely going to work. I can say that it's a pretty big industry. It's worth $130 million a year in sales at this stage across the world, which is not a huge industry in terms of worldwide sales, but there's $130 million worth of these products that are sold. So there are some of them out there and they're being bought and sold. This is interesting. I'd love to hear from any of our listeners that have actually tried EMS, tried any EMS devices, maybe not the full body suit or maybe the full body suit, who knows, but I'd love to know whether there's some definitive answers on whether it works. I reckon it'd be just great value for just putting on, <laughs> cranking up the voltage and then videoing it and then let social media do the rest. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one of the problems with running and cycling to get fit is that going over the same old tracks ad nauseum can get quite boring and monotonous. How do you keep your brain engaged and motivated to tear out another 5 or 10 Ks? Answer, you start creating art courtesy of your GPS tracker. Matt, can you see yourself large-scale doodling GPS style? Well, I kind of do a little bit of this without the technical features of art. When I do travel around different places, and so, for example, we mentioned at the beginning of the show over in Egypt, and I went for a run one morning out to the pyramids around Giza and went out there, and then I actually usually send some images back to my kids to go, oh, look, there's an interesting run today, and you just see the little map there of a little run, and it's just a boring out-and-back run, yeah, but yeah. a run beside the pyramids, or I went for a run beside the Dead Sea, for example. So here's a little run along beside the Dead Sea. So I kind of do a little bit of that just to show some different places you might be to your family and kids and that sort of thing, but some people get pretty serious about it. Some people about their art. About their art. Some people like to go and create GPS art. And it started a long time ago, started almost 20 years ago when people started noticing that when they went for a walk or a run using their GPS device and then they came back, they could see the map of what it did. So then they went, "Well, hold on. What about if I made the map more interesting?" So the first <laughs> Example of it was way back in 2003 when Jeremy Wood and Hugh Pryor used some GPS devices and they were just doing bushwalks to track out some different art. And then people started to get really creative with it. So they started to do logos or basic artworks or they took really complicated artworks and one is a 1665 painting by Vermeer, Girl with a Pearl Earring. Now that's a beautiful painting. But wow, hang on a second. So that's, they, that's been, how much walking or cycling do you have to do to get a whole painting done? Well, in this particular example, this person did a 50-mile cycle track that had been tracked out, obviously sitting away, planning yeah. on a computer with the various streets you could ride a bike on because you can't just go anywhere. You can't go to the middle of someone's house or something. So you have to map all this out and then go and do it. It's a good excuse, a good way to get people out of the house and do exercise with that whole idea in mind. So what's going to get me out today? Well, I'm going to create some GPS artwork. And then you started to get some of the airlines getting into it. So <laughs> a couple of years ago, when Qantas retired their very last 747, they flew it over the Mojave Desert and parked it there where they parked lots of planes. When they that plane took off, people didn't know about this, but people like to track plane flights. Some people have very little to do in their lives. Mm. <laughs> Apologies to all those people out there Fair who enough. track their plane flights. <laughs> and you saw the plane take off and it's flying across towards the US from Australia. And then it kind of took a left turn back up towards Newcastle on the New South Wales East Coast. And then it started doing some different things. And by the end of it, and after it finished its little different tracks there and kept going, there was the flying kangaroo, oh, the logo. Oh, Air New Zealand weren't to be outdone, so they did a little track of a flight not long after that, which tracked out the Kiwi, the national bird for New Zealand. So there are airlines who get into it and do various things as well. So anytime people have got some sort of GPS tracking, whether it be running or cycling or a plane, they're creating these artworks. Great fun, <laughs> lots of fun. But I suppose the main thing here is if it gets you off the couch, away from your EMS suit that you've got on, and gets you out there doing some things out in the real world, and I must admit, I like the idea of doing it 
on a bike more than running because you can cover more distance. So surely it's got to be easier to map out a good artwork doing so it on a bike. you get a higher definition on your um, artwork. <laughs> exactly right. <'cause laughs> okay. It's all about the definition. Right. A plane is cheating a bit because you don't have streets that you've got to stick to. You can yeah. just fly anywhere. So I kind of think that they've got it a bit too easy, the pilots. So I like yeah, the idea of that's cycling. That's cheating. That's right. Cycling and getting out there and creating that artwork. But I just I like to see... What's happening next? What artwork is going to be created next? The Mona Lisa, surely someone's going to create that somewhere. Well, there's a number of different apps that where the um, the track that you take also, you have different colours for the speed that you're going. So if you're going slowly, you get a blue, and then everything uh, between that and the fastest part of your journey, uh, which is red, gets sort of that rainbow there. I wonder if you could... Incorporate, the, incorporate the colour there, yeah, maybe just by speeding up in certain places and slowing down in other places <laughs> um, and get... Um, Get some real texture to your picture too. So if yeah. you're really bored and you want to do something so for a Guinness World Record fit. and super fit, the, the current Guinness World Record is a couple who completed a four and a half thousand mile bike ride across Europe to give them a 600 mile wide GPS drawing of a bicycle. <laughs> so wow. that's the largest such GPS art on record according to The Guardian, who was reporting on that from the Guinness World Record. So if you're really keen, if you want to create something big, pretty big country here. So if you want to do something, I reckon you could do it across Australia. And you've got some parts of Australia. There's not a lot of roads out there in the middle of Australia. So you could, probably could do it with pretty good definition for what you're tracking out. <laughs> Well, you heard it here, folks. GPS art, go and Google it. It won't be long before bipedal robotic Olympics are a thing as well. And news is hotting up over the 100-metre dash. While Usain Bolt may be breathing easy over his records on the track, the mechatronic action is pretty neat nonetheless. Matt, it seems that we are one step closer to Terminator 2000 here. These things are getting trained to run faster and faster. While we're on the topic of Guinness World Records, a new Guinness World Record has just been set by a bipedal robot. And as you say, Usain's not that concerned at the moment. In fact, I'm I'm backing you in against this record. Yeah, James. thank you very much. <laughs> this, All right. This is a bipedal robot named Cassie, and the new Guinness World Record for the 100-metre dash is 24.73 seconds. All right, I'd have to have done the stretches beforehand, of course. <laughs> no, I'd back, I'd back you in without stretching. I reckon you can you can crack that. Usain Bolt, of course, is about 9.58 seconds for his world record, so not quite there. But what's exciting is that what we really want is robots with two feet rather than we've seen things like Spot the Robot, four feet, four legs, mm. and they can get around a, range, around a whole range of things. But we've designed our society around us, around people with two legs. So the more we can develop robots with two legs rather than four, the more they'll be able to integrate into our general society. Now, I, I saw the footage of this bipedal robot too. It is just a pair of legs. <laughs> it, it's, there's no torso to it or anything. So that's a little bit scarier though. I mean, imagine being chased by just a pair of legs. <laughs> It sounds like something out of a cartoon <laughs> or some scary movie, doesn't it? Where it's the legs chasing yeah, you. <laughs> so obviously the development of the pair of legs, as you say, is about trying to get the mechanics, the engineering right for the pair of legs. Mm. They'll eventually put things on top of that pair of legs to help out and do the washing and the ironing and bring us drinks when we're sitting there <laughs> on the couch with our AMS suit. Getting fit. That's right. And toned. But it's really about just trying to get that right because it is quite hard we are cleverer than we realise, James. We've talked about it before in terms of what we can do with our brain compared mm. to what computers can do with AI. And as impressive as they might be, as a computer might be, with its memory capabilities, we are still much more creative and we can think more creatively than our AI at this stage. We're also pretty clever that we can stand up. We've got two little legs there. It's not a great way to balance when you've just got two balance points for any object that you stand up and our little toes are doing lots of hard work and making sure we balance there. And we're yeah, the, the mechanics movement. of just standing up is actually quite um, quite special and that's why toddlers can't do it. Yeah, and then you add walking into that. So you stand mm. up, there's one bit of complexity, now you're going to get motion, you're going to start moving and then you're going to start running and running 100 metres in 9.58 seconds. Yeah. So all of that's quite complicated. So robot development with bipedal robots is a huge area of development because when we have someone in our house helping out around the house, 
We don't want a four-legged thing that looks like a dog because we'll feel a bit less comfortable with that. We want someone that's two-legged walking around. And again, all the things around our house are designed for two legs. Stairs up to the upstairs or the step we might have at the front door, all these things we've got are designed for people, with humans with two legs. So the more we can work on that with two legs, the better. They've also got a 5K record. So if you're thinking about that 100-metre sprint, you don't love that too much then the record for a five-kilometre run by a bipedal robot is about 53 minutes. So I'm backing you in against that absolutely yeah, as right. well. You know, I, I know your park I run. I know your park run times are, <laughs> are better than half that. So getting Mate, down there. It's been a while though. Um, yeah. Anyway, moving <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> so so again, they're, they're getting to that stage where all this development's happening in there. And of course, there's these great promises by people like Elon Musk that are talking about a robot that they're designing from a Tesla perspective. So there's all these companies out there that are working on this, but it is. A pretty good sort of speed that that can set, even though it doesn't sound that impressive, 24.73 seconds, it is getting there in terms of how Mm. fast these two-legged robots can move. And they haven't stopped there. I mean, one assumes that they're trying to make them go faster. Yeah, yeah. And actually, one of the things they said is that the really difficult part for this particular record they set was not so much the running part, it was the starting and stopping so from yeah, standing right. there on two legs, yeah. then running and Being getting up to, to speed. Balance. That's right. And then getting up to speed, keeping it that seemed like it was okay, but then slowing it down and stopping again, mm. that was all quite clever and quite complicated. And again, that's what we want. We want our robot to be able to go and fetch the paper from out the front as quickly as you possibly can, but then don't just keep running through the front door. We want them to stop at the front well, door. Well, they've also got to be able to negotiate uneven terrain as well. Mm. So little inconsistencies in the path yeah, that's without right. falling over because if you have to keep, keep propping up your robot... <laughs> They're supposed to be serving you through the day. That's right. That's no good at all. <laughs> Can someone help me? I've fallen over. No, your job's meant to help me. So we are clever, but we're getting there with robots. Very, very good. Now, we all know resistance is futile. It's an important lesson, particularly if you're from the Apple European headquarters and you've been trying hard to keep the lightning cable alive. Matt Two things I learned here are firstly that USB-C is now well and truly the standard. And secondly, that there is actually a European headquarters for Apple. (laughs) (laughs) It's in County Cork, would you believe, (laughs) in Ireland. So we have talked a little bit about this, and I suppose this is really an update on where we're headed. USB-C is common amongst many devices apart from, of course, Apple. And Apple normally are a law unto themselves and they make the laws or they make the standards for so many different things. In this case, they're being beaten up by every other manufacturer around the world. And Apple have actually come to the party to a certain extent because their iPad Air and iPad Pro range of iPads both use USB-C, which is a bit ironic because Apple have been arguing against being forced into USB-C for their iPhones because they say that it will stifle innovation by making us use USB-C. Meanwhile, their iPad Air and their iPad Pro, which are their higher spec iPads, are using USB-C. So there's not a lot of logic there. I think mm. the logic really is that Apple don't want to go too away from their lightning ports because they make money out of every other company that designs devices to use the lightning port. They pay a small royalty fee on that. But it's happening. The European Parliament has now adopted the law making USB-C charging mandatory on phones and other small devices by 2024. Now, that date's interesting because... That's pretty soon. That is pretty soon. And there's been discussion for some time. In fact, you might even say there's been discussion for more than a decade, but it's been a serious discussion over the last couple of years. But September 2023 is when Apple normally announced their latest range of iPhones. So anyone that's thinking about the iPhone 15 maybe going to USB-C. There was some speculation, but not serious speculation, that this year the U- the iPhone 14 might have had USB-C, but I don't think people are seriously thinking that. But next year, the big question is, what will Apple do? Do they make one phone for the European market and one phone for the rest of the world? Do you really want to have two separate, distinct manufacturing chains with that physical component? I'm not sure that's the smartest way to go. Hmm. Depends how much money they make out of their lightning port devices. Or will Apple just say, you know what, we've resisted for as long as we possibly can. September 2023, when we make the announcement of the iPhone 15, Maybe that's the time to go USB-C. I don't know there'll be much wriggle room for them. It's getting to the stage now when it's law. There's been discussions before. There's been various votes of various 
groups and subgroups in Europe, but now it's gotten to the stage where the European Parliament has adopted the law. Oh, I don't know if there's many legal challenges left for Apple. I don't know they want to do it. How much money do you want to spend on that for how much money you make out of Lightning? So I think it's going to happen. I think we're going to see everything, everything across the world, USB-C. And USB-C. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic because... There are so many times in the past that you had different proprietary devices. We're getting better now. Most of the devices people have now would be micro USB or USB-C or maybe lightning ports. So there's been a few of those. But it gets to the stage where everything's USB-C. I think it just makes it so much easier. Then you buy devices that don't have charges in them because everyone will have their charges or they'll buy it separately. And that's what this is all about. So they say in Europe, they said there is so much waste that's been created over the years having to buy new charges having to buy new devices that have got charges with them and then they eventually get thrown out because the next device comes out, they don't need it. Or it might even have a charging port that you already have another charger for, but you're getting there anyway. What I found interesting was that the vote in the end, and this is the European Parliament, was 602 votes in favour and 13 against. Eight people abstained from the voting. I just want to know the logic of those 13 against. It's not like it was a tight debate, was it? 602 yeah. <laughs> to 13. Yeah. Were those 13... We love lightning cables. <laughs> I don't know, maybe they're big Apple fans. And the eight that decided that they weren't going to vote. I can't make a mind. It's too tough for <laughs> it's me. It's too tough. I know I'm here I to make decisions. Technology. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but that's it's all the thing. too much for me. You, you're in there to make decisions. So you have to make a decision. You've got to make a decision one way or the other. You, mm. you can't be a wuss and sit on the fence, which is what they did effectively. Well, I wonder, I mean... What are the chances they just spit the dummy and say, well, we're not even going to have any port at all. Um, we just can make, you can have Bluetooth and you can have wireless charging and that's it. There is a big chance of that. I think the ability for the phones, also different devices to charge wireless is already there. And then you might need the port to transfer data. But you yeah. can transfer data, as you said, wirelessly. There yeah. are different ways to transfer data, not just with Wi-Fi, not just with Bluetooth. There are different ways that you've got to transfer data from an iPhone at the moment. So maybe they would go, that's it. And Because I can see even USB-C cords sort of becoming obsolete themselves. Yeah, yeah, you might get to that stage. And then it would make it better for waterproofing. A lot of the reason I think that watches have got no charging port, they're all charged wirelessly and transfer data wirelessly, is because it's easier to make that device waterproof. So you can get watches that are 50 metre mm. water resistant or 100 metre water resistant, whereas most phones might only be, say, one and a half metres water resistant. Again, you've got this big port at the bottom that you plug something into, that's got to be part of the problem you would, thought, you would think in terms of making it waterproof. Remove that port, sure, you've still got to have some opening there for sound to come out and sound to go in in terms of a microphone and a speaker, but it seems like they're okay with those to keep them water resistant, but that big port at the bottom is a bit tougher. Hmm. Stop putting holes in your phone. For about 80 years now, sonar has been has proven to be pretty effective as a way for submarines to see underwater. And for stealthy submarines... Trying to remain invisible to sound waves by not reflecting them has been quite the challenge. You have to effectively absorb the sound, which is easier said than done. Until now, Matthew. Well, I think it's a really tough one, this one. I love the story. I love the concept. And I'm starting to try and think of how it might be used in the real world. But we'll get to that in a minute. Sonar is a bit different to radar. And when we see some planes, for example, the stealth bomber, the B-2 stealth bomber, is designed to try and get around radar by doing a couple of things. The first thing it does is have lots of round rather than very sharp angles rather than flat surfaces so that when radar signals hit that, it doesn't bounce straight back. So that's one way they try and do it. Then they try and use materials that absorb some of that radar signal as well. When you're talking about submarines, already you've got a perfectly curved surface. Mm. So it doesn't bounce those signals back very well, but we're talking about sonar using very low frequencies. So it's going to bounce back no matter what that shape is. Mm. It's going to bounce something back. So the approach has always been in the past that they take some type of surface and let the sound, and it is literally sound waves here, very low frequency sound waves, be absorbed by that. And so submarines across the world for years have been, or decades, have been doing that. This particular coating they've now come up with does a couple of things. For a start, it's much thinner. Normally, the surface they have on a submarine is about 100 millimetres or more thick to try and absorb that signal. 
But what they did in this scenario, and it was out by a university in China where it occurred, where all the research occurred, they got it to the stage where it was 32 millimetres thick. So not very thick. When you think of a submarine, mm, yeah. the thickness of that is nothing. But they did some machine learning to try and come up with the absolute best shape to absorb different frequencies. And when you're talking about a ship trying to detect a submarine, there's a couple of different frequencies they use. They use very low frequencies to try and get a submarine that might be hundreds of kilometres away. So you're looking at there's very low frequencies. They send it out, and they're not entirely accurate about where it is. They know the general direction of it. They know generally where it is, but they can't track it down to extreme accuracy. But then they use slightly higher frequencies to try and get it, as they get closer to that submarine, to try and work out where that submarine might be because you can get a bit more accuracy. Hmm. So this particular surface has got to absorb some different frequencies, very low and then slightly higher frequencies, that might be put out by a ship to try and detect that submarine. So this computer simulation they ran, some machine learning they ran to try and design the best possible shape. And then you come up with a kind of a lattice shape of rubber and then some metal that was run down the middle of that as well to try and get to the stage where they were absorbing that signal. And they did it very well to the stage where they were finding they could absorb about 95% of the sonar signal that was put out. So if you're wow. a sonar operator, you're sitting there putting out your, your pings and you're watching the return and you probably wouldn't Notice getting a very, very faint reply. Correct. 5% coming back. That could just be some type of animal, a whale, for example. It might just be the ocean bottom. There might be a reef there. So you've or got to be. It could a, be a bloody big submarine. It could be a submarine. <laughs> but you've got to be a pretty skilled operator to pick up when you're only getting that 5% return. So that worked well for that. And again, that's very specialized. So then I started thinking, well, what else could be useful in the world having something that absorbs sound very well. Now, we're sitting at the moment in a studio that's got lots of interesting shapes on the walls to try and absorb some of the sound so the sound quality that comes through to our listeners is very good. Probably wasn't that big an issue before because you had studios, radio studios, TV studios maybe that had some type of coding on there. But now in the world we live in, James, there are so many people who are working from home, doing video conferencing Mm. and... I get frustrated with two types of video conferencing when I'm doing it with people. One is where they just don't understand lighting. They put all the light behind them. And so then you've got a little black blob in the middle that's someone's head with all this glowing light around them. And the other one is when you're talking to someone and you can just hear all the echo because they're sitting, I don't know, out in their kitchen where they've got a hard surface on the floor and glass around them and it's Mm. all bouncing around. So I thought if you can have some sort of surface that absorbs sound very well, maybe some easy way people could actually have somewhere they could do their video conferencing, whack a bit of this surface on, or this substance on the surface of the walls. It's only 30 millimetres or 32 millimetres thick, so it's not that thick. And presumably, if it can be designed to absorb very low frequencies, scale it up a little bit to the frequencies that people talk at, and it might be able to absorb our frequencies that we talk at very easily. So there might be a practical everyday use for people out there rather than just coding submarines, which seems fairly specialised. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a lot of the technology that we have started off with somewhere in the military um, and ended up um, in day-to-day use. So exactly right. Be interesting to see how this goes. Yeah, so the first thing is we won't be able to see submarines. Good luck to those people out there looking for submarines. Second thing is we might see it in boardrooms around the world. Who knows? Well, I learned a little bit about sonar just now and I thank you very much. Now, for the naysayers who've insisted that electric commuter planes would never happen, I've only got a head shake, a finger waggle, and a good old-fashioned tsk for you. In the tech world, is there a more obsolete word than never? Matt, is commuter travel about to be tipped on its head by commuter electric planes? It's going to be tipped on its head, about to be tipped on its head, I just need a definition on how long you think about is. So we've still got a little bit more waiting to do. We've got a bit more waiting to do. And those like regulation type things that people have got to go through, that's got to happen yet. To make sure that um, these things actually work and don't kill people. Yeah, all that sort of safety and stuff. But (laughs) ignore that for the moment. It's all happening, James. It's all going to happen. So Alice is a new electric commuter plane and it just flew for the first time. So it was a maiden flight. It flew for eight minutes. So probably not a big distance flight. Yeah, okay. All right. There's <laughs> a company called Eviation, and it flew above central Washington state. Two electric motors spinning a couple of propellers near the tail. It had 3,600 kilograms of batteries on board and hit about 275 kilometres an hour. So, See, eight minutes, I reckon that would probably be, that'll get you from, I don't know, Parramatta to the CBD in Sydney? 
yeah, it's probably about it at this stage. But keep in mind that this is the start. Now, 3,600 kilograms, that's 3.6 tonnes of batteries. Obviously, that's more than you would have in terms of fuel that you might carry on board a plane. But when you consider some of these small commuter planes, and this is where electric planes will focus on, those small commuter flights that are maybe an hour long, so eight minutes, yeah, not there yet, but an hour. Mm. And most of those planes are in the 20 to 30 tonne sort of range for those planes that sit around the 30 to 70 passenger mark. So when you talk about three and a half tonnes of batteries, well, that's a fair component of a 30-tonne plane, but it's not all of that 30-tonne plane. So Mm. there's a bit more room to go in terms of putting more batteries in, getting more efficient with those batteries. But again, at this stage, a lot of it is all around the testing, making sure that eventually this is in the US, the FAA is quite happy with it. And the first thing I think we'll see is this will be used for transport of goods. A lot of those short flights when they're taking, again, that say one hour flight time, they're using propeller aircraft, they're more efficient in their short flights. But getting to the stage where they're using electric aircraft, I think that'll be the place where you'll see the DHLs of the world, those various freight companies, they're already putting orders in or expressions of interest of various companies to actually get the stage where they've got electric planes. And then once that works successfully for a period of time, I think you'll get people on there, maybe a bit nervous at first, and maybe you wait till one of your friends does it first before you do it. But it makes sense. And I would actually back an electric plane and its reliability over something that uses some sort of fossil fuel. There's a lot more going on in a turboprop or a jet engine Mm -hmm. than there is in an electric propeller. They're pretty simple, an electric propeller. As long as you've got enough battery, and hopefully as long as your battery gauge is right, then, yep, I've got 50% charge, I've got 20% charge, I'm still right to go. As long as you get that part right, then the motor itself is a really simple device. Very few moving parts, very little that can go wrong with that, except running out of Battery. That, that's the big issue. That well, I wonder how many people would be interested in eight, an eight-minute commute from Parramatta to C, the CBD. Yeah, and I think that's right as well. You might see them used in those very short flights, and there are various companies out there that are looking at those, taking you from your home through to the airport, for example, some of those commutes. So I think you will see some of those in a different style of aircraft. But aviation in particular, what they're really trying to do is get to that stage where they can do those one-hour mm. type flights. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's the real development there. It's going to happen. We will, in our lifetime, we will get on a plane, I guarantee that you and I at some stage will be on an electric aircraft to fly a normal flight that we might fly that might be that one-hour sort of length. The big long-haul flights going overseas, being up in the air for 13 hours at a time, long way to go before we get some alternative to jet fuel there. But that's okay if the only flights that were using jet fuel were those long-haul flights, there's a lot of those short commuter flights that are using up a lot of jet fuel at the moment. So I think that's the first area of development, and then it gives us more time. And what we're trying to do is buy time in the planet that we're on to get to that stage. So it's pretty exciting. Keep an eye out for Alice. Alice will keep doing test flights, will keep working with FAA, keep working to extend the flight times, and eventually get to the stage where we'll be on something like Alice. Fantastic. As a general warning to listeners, the next story concerns the delicate but important topic of suicide. Matt, smartphone software is now at a point where it could potentially predict and intervene in potential suicide attempts. This is a big deal. Mm. And we are seeing more and more wearables, devices that we have on our body, associated with our body to try and track various health. And and I was going to say it's easy, but it's not easy when they start talking about tracking your heart rate, for example, or doing an ECG with your devices or how much sweat you put out. They're all physical characteristics. So that's got to be easier than tracking mental health. But that's the challenge that they've really got. At the moment, there's a research project and it's tracking hundreds of people to just see if they can get to the stage where they can use wearable biosensors and what people feel in terms of how they feel themselves track all that back to an app on a phone that they carry with them, obviously, as most people do carry their smartphone with them. And then when it gets to the stage where maybe there are some triggers, then some experts are called in to say, hey, we've noticed that there's something with your biosensors, something with your mood levels that doesn't look right. Do you want to come and have a chat to us? Wow. And so this is really important stuff because we do lose way too many people to suicide. I know in this country we do. And... Yeah, so so in this case, the alert wouldn't necessarily be sent to the person who's got the the device. It would be no. sent to the people, the significant people around. Exactly right. And, and where they're doing the testing is when they've had people that have come into a hospital or they've been treated by someone where they've had some form of episode, where they've had something where they've been identified as being at risk, 
And then it's all well and good. You might be in that beautiful, serene hospital environment looked after by experts and you start to feel better. But the risk factor is when these people go back out in the outside world, mm. when their normal day-to-day life starts to take over, which put them into a state that ended them up in sort of special care anyway, how do they keep track of that? And they were caught the first time and some sort of intervention happened, but maybe that's not going to happen the next time. And then everyone says, oh no, we didn't realise that they were at that level. Well, now maybe some experts will realise they're at that level that they're getting very close to taking their own life. And again, a combination of biosensors and some sort of mood sensing on there. Now, of course, people can lie about that. People can say, oh, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great thinking to themselves, right, tonight I'm going to end it all. I don't see the point in living anymore. It's all over. But the biosensors might be enough to pick up some of that. So they might pick up a bit of anxiety. They might pick up the fact that they're sweating even though they're not doing any physical activity. There Mm. are some things in there in those biosensors. So this is the experimentation that's happening at the moment. The interesting part is that there's no final conclusions from it yet. It is really a research project at this stage. And hopefully in the research project, there's enough intervention that no one loses their life in this process. But that's probably unrealistic to think that. But do the triggers, do the various sensors have enough data that this could be applied to lots of people across the world? And so that's the interesting part there because, again, I look at research around deaths in Australia, for example, and people that die of heart attacks, people that die of diseases related to smoking, for example, are typically much older. The average age for people that die of suicide, when you average out all the suicides, is more like people in their 30s. So you think about Mm, all that potential they've got to contribute to society, all that potential they've got to live a life, and we're losing those people. And again, that's the average in the 30s. There are many people who take their life in their teenage years or in their early 20s, and again, all that potential that's lost. So if there's any way that technology can help address that, if it means wearing biosensors, if it means tracking moods on a smartphone, if it means having some sort of technology intervene, and if it gets it wrong sometimes in terms of it intervenes too early and everyone says, no, no, you're going too early, that's probably okay. Mm. Let's face it, if you get called in to talk to someone and you say everything's right and no harm is done, then that sounds like it's not a bad outcome. That's not a bad So outcome. it's a really mm. interesting process at the moment. I'll be interested to track this and see where it goes. I've done some fundraising for organisations like Lifeline. Luckily, from my personal perspective, I've never lost anyone close to me by suicide, but certainly there are people out there every day where it's occurring. So if we can come up with something that helps address this problem, absolutely fantastic. If technology can be a part of that, I think that's a great thing. Mm. And of course, a reminder to any listeners who have found uh, content today triggering in any way to reach out to Lifeline on 131114. And that concludes our podcast today. I've now got eight minutes to get across town for my next engagement. If only there was a way that I could avoid the traffic, Matt. Oh, what could we do, James? What could we do? Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in once again. I'm James Eddy, and as always, it's been an absolute pleasure to deliver you another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Don't forget to give us a like or a five-star rating or even leave a comment with the provider that has brought us to you. Catch you again in another week's time.